Dale Martin was 18 years old when he died from a brain injury sustained during a high school football game in early April. The Colville High School senior was the kind of kid who would always hold the door for you, said his coach. Preventing tragedies like the one depicted here will require the country, not just players and schools and families, to address deeply rooted cultural attitudes that celebrate the dangers of a high-risk collision sport for children. We must instead champion new narratives for youth sports that foster lifelong health, rather than pushing children to ignore pain and destroy their opponents. Kids need and deserve playing fields, not battlefields. That was Kathleen Bashinsky reading from the first opinion, Next Boy Up, Kids Continue to Die on High School Football Fields. Kathleen's a public health researcher and author of the book, No Game for Boys to Play, The History of Youth Football and the Origins of a Public Health Crisis. She wrote the first opinion with Lisa Kearns and Arthur Kaplan at NYU. I'll bring you our conversation after a word about Stat Plus. If you enjoy the First Opinion podcast, you can get exclusive coverage from STAT with a subscription to STAT Plus. STAT Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, healthcare, and the life sciences writ large from our award-winning team of reporters. As a special thanks for listening to the podcast, you can get 10% off at STAT Plus subscription and 10% off a ticket to our upcoming in-person event in New York on December 9th called a look ahead at biotech in 2022 by using the code POD, that's P-O-D in all caps. To subscribe to STAT Plus, you can use that code at statnews.com slash subscribe. To register for the event with the P-O-D code, visit statnews.com slash lookahead, all one word. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here. The essay you read from was actually the fifth one on football injuries. And, and I should point out here that by football, Kathleen and I are referring to American football, not the kind of football that Ted Lasso's AFC Richmond plays in England. Um, it's the fifth one of these that you and Lisa and Art have done uh, since November 2017, not long after stats started. So it's really great to talk with you and not just be exchanging emails. Absolutely. It's hard to believe it's our fifth anniversary of this. You know, can you just describe for listeners what these football reels, as you call them, are? Absolutely. Uh, so my colleagues, Art Kaplan and, and Lisa Kearns and I, were talking about how, from a sports perspective, the highlight reel for a football game is, you know, the, the greatest pass or the touchdown, those really dramatic moments. But we're public health and medical ethicists. And from our perspective, the, the moments that really stand out to us that we're really focused on from football games are some of the most dramatic or catastrophic injuries that take place. And unfortunately, 
every football game, every football season, we seem to have found a really large highlight reel of injuries affecting players all the way from the youth level up to the pros. And what's your, these things look like they take a lot of work. What's your rationale for doing them? Uh, we, we really feel that it's important for the public to be aware that this is also part of the game as it's currently played, that often what happens, especially when a game is televised, is as soon as there's an injury, the camera will move away, they'll, they'll cut to commercial, that these injuries often sort of don't make it to the spotlight. And we felt that it was really important to, to raise awareness of these injuries, but it definitely was a lot of work, especially for the younger age groups, because those games are often not even televised. So you're really having to dig through local news stories or you know local media outlets to even identify what injuries actually took place. We'll come back to the injuries in a second. I just want to say from personal experience that the gravitational pull of youth football is tough to avoid. My wife, Helen Daher, and I have three kids. Our oldest, Michael, and his younger sister, Helen Claire, played youth soccer and baseball or softball, but sports really wasn't their thing. Helen Claire's twin brother, Peter, though, loved sports from the get-go. When he was about 10, I remember the father of one of his baseball teammates trying to recruit him to play Pop Warner. We liked the dad and his son, but we weren't keen on Pop Warner, which this was around 2007. Concussions were starting to trickle into the news. Helen recalls telling Peter, your brain is too important. Your mama says no football. And she told me later that given the strong father-son connection between football, she threw herself under the bus for this and said, it's my decision you're not playing football. <clears throat> but it was a bigger challenge when Peter was in high school and was tall and athletic on the basketball team. And the summer before his senior year, two of his friends came by to lobby Helen, basically, to let Peter join the football team. Fortunately, or not fortunately, but he had sustained a bad concussion playing basketball which we never knew could happen um, before that. And Helen was still protect your brain. So, and the, the football team wasn't very good. Sorry, Boston Latin, but it just wasn't. Um, so it was easy enough to convince him or have him convince himself not to join. But it still made a, a challenging set of conversations. Have you ever had to have this kind of conversation with kids? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I would I would certainly add that I'm from uh, originally from Michigan, which is, you know, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I went to the University of Michigan. And I guess a similar experience to you, where even though I myself didn't play football, I was a soccer player myself, it was very difficult to avoid the gravitational pull of the game where, you know, the campus would pretty much totally empty out every week in the fall when the football game was on. Um, I've talked to a number of parents who are wrestling with this really challenging decision of, you know, I really want my kid to play sports, but I'm really worried about the concussion risk. And the line that I draw is full body collisions. So what I mean by a, a mm. collision sport would be something like boxing or tackle football or body checking in hockey, where part of the game inherently involves repeated full body collisions. And you kind of can't get away from that in, in the way the game is designed. And that's where I sort of say, I don't think kids need repeated full body collisions. We want to let their brains develop 
and know that they're not, you know, intentionally colliding repeatedly as part of the game. There's alternatives like ice hockey without body checking or flag football or soccer, other sports where there can be incidental contact. And certainly that's a risk as well. That's how somebody would get a concussion in basketball is you still have the potential risk of, of players still having contact, but it's not baked in inherently to, to sort of every play or every, you know, every game where players are intentionally colliding with each other. So do you have kids or, or if you don't in the future, would you let one who was really keen to play football play football? Uh, I don't currently have kids, but I would not allow either my own kid or if I, if I were to have a say, you know, I certainly have had this conversation with my, my siblings and, and family members. I would say, I would say no, I would say no to any collision sport. And that would include tackle football or boxing for young kids. Well, that, that's taking exactly the position my wife took. How did you get the, the sports bug? What, what was it about sports that got you interested in actually studying it? Well, I actually did play sports myself. I was a soccer player and the sort of personal moment that got me interested in sport injuries was that I had a big knee injury in high school. It was one of those, unfortunately, the classic trifecta, which many uh, soc soccer players experience, which is I ripped my ACL, my MCL and my meniscus and one big nasty injury. <laughs> I had to have an ACL reconstruction, reschedule my SATs. It really dominated my junior year of high school. And by the time I got to college, I realized, you know, this wasn't just me. I had friends, you know, teammates, classmates who'd also experienced significant sport injuries that had, you know, disrupted some part of their lives. They maybe had to take time off of school or, you know, had other significant effects from them. And when I went on to study public health, I just really passionately felt that this is an understudied issue from a public health perspective, that this isn't just like, uh, you know, a random accident, that these are, you know, systematic injuries, there's patterns, we can study them. We can try to prevent them. And I'm especially passionate about youth health because if we prevent these injuries in younger people, I think that sets you up for, you know, lifelong sports and lifelong health, lifelong physical activity. So that's what really pulled me to this from a public health point of view. Interesting. You know, in the football reels, you documented concussions and broken bones, sprained ligaments, um, uh, spleen and kidney injuries. Somebody had a spleen removed, I remember, from one of them. What was your initial initial plan for doing them? How did you go about compiling? Well, we actually honestly started with just, let's keep an eye out on the news. And if I recall correctly, we, we quickly got very overwhelmed when we started to think about doing a full season. And we realized we're actually going to have to narrow this down to a week out of the whole season. Because if we try to do an entire season of football injuries, this is going to be a book. <laughs> we can't boil this down. So we picked one week and we sort of divvied it up. You know, one of us would focus on the pro level and college and then others would focus on high school and, you know, even middle school level of play. And for example, I would just do Google news searches. I would look for local news outlets that would report on injuries. I actually recall even doing some searches where I said, okay, got to search for concussion. I've got to search for knee injury, neck injury, just kind of walking through what some of the most common injuries were. And then we compiled our list together and realized our list is still too long. So even with one week, we're going to have to narrow it down to the, the more you know, impactful or, or serious injuries and then just treat this as a snapshot because we realized we can't be fully comprehensive. We can't even document every injury. So we're just going to have to make this one snapshot from one week. Wow, that's, that's quite a list. You've also found kids who have died playing 
high school football. Yes, it's just, it's absolutely tragic. And it's just awful to realize that every single year we sort of prepare ourselves mentally that we are almost certainly going to come across at least, you know, one or two or a handful of stories. Quite often it is a brain injury. Um, occasionally at both the high school and college level, there's also heat stroke injuries. Those are just totally preventable. Nobody should be dying of heat stroke. If you have prompt medical attention, you should be able to prevent that. And so we felt very strongly we need to include this too. I would, I would describe death as, as obviously the most catastrophic outcome, but also in some ways the tip of the, of the iceberg. If somebody is dying of a heat stroke, that's a signal that more broadly, safety is not being taken seriously enough that there's likely other preventive measures that aren't in place. And so we need to be looking really seriously at, at the deaths, but also the, the non-fatal injuries that are happening that might be associated as well. Has anybody ever tried to rank um, sports, youth sports, in terms of their the word I'm coming up with is dangerosity, but that's not a word, um, you know, in, in terms of how dangerous they are for kids. Yeah, there actually have been some really interesting efforts to do that. Again, Aspen Project Play is the first one that comes to my mind. I know the Aspen Institute, they they assigned rankings for sports on a number, number of factors and safety was one. And it's, it's definitely possible to do, but I would add that the data are fairly limited. So hmm. as I'm sure you know, Concussion in particular is a prime example of this. Concussions are very often underreported. And certainly, if you're just looking at the, the concussions that actually get reported out to a trainer, you're probably going to miss a lot of concussions that, that took place. But for social or cultural pressures, the athlete didn't actually bring it to a trainer's attention or didn't seek medical attention. That being said, football almost always ranks among the highest in terms of concussion risk. Other sports include um, ice hockey, lacrosse that are quite often up there, soccer as well. Um, and then trying to tease apart the, the other injuries that take place and also trying to distinguish between sports that have very common injuries that are more minor, like ankle sprains, versus uh, sports that tend to have rare injuries that are often catastrophic. And one I would put in that category, which may seem surprising, is cheerleading. Cheerleading actually has a number of just very severe catastrophic back injuries. And as you can imagine, that's because if you're doing a, a really complicated formation and somebody falls, they can fall from quite a significant height, get very severely injured. So that would be one that would rank very highly on catastrophic injuries, but certainly wouldn't rank quite as highly on the sort of smaller, quote unquote, um, more treatable injuries that tend to be a little bit more common in other sports. So that's a very long way of saying, we do our best to kind of compile the data we have, but sometimes it can be a little bit apples to orange comparison, or you really have to look and see what what kinds of injuries are you comparing across the different sports. Well, thank you for bringing in cheerleading. I was going to ask about that. A lot of people don't think of it as a sport, but all you have to do is watch it, and and you know it really, it really, really, really is a sport. I was surprised about basketball when my son had a concussion and I started poking around numbers to see that it was actually, there were actually a fair number of concussions in basketball. And I gather it's because it's not supposed to be a full collision sport, but it is. And it's often being hit in the head with a basketball as your head is moving. And I gather that that's one of the it's the movement, the side to side that's important in concussions. 
Yeah, I would absolutely say a broader trend across all youth sports that I think has you know, further increased this public health issue is just that over the last 20, 30 years or so, youth sports have become even more competitive. You know, the, the allure of college scholarships, kids at younger ages specializing in one single sport as compared to saying, you know, I'm just going to play a little bit of football in the fall and then maybe baseball in the spring and, you know, kind of explore different options. Instead, kids at much younger ages are saying, I'm going to specialize in one sport, train in this year round, try to, you know, have uh, maybe a shot at a college scholarship. And the nature of the competition has become much more intense. And I think that really has genuinely increased the risk where kids are competing in a much more intense context. Um, And many sports, as you're pointing out, that on paper, you might say, this doesn't seem like it has a lot of contact mechanisms. You are seeing more opportunities for contact. Another example I would uh, offer just because I've happened to study it is girls lacrosse. On paper, it's actually a non-contact sport. And currently most girls lacrosse teams don't require helmets, but you've still got flying, you know, lacrosse sticks, flying balls. There's still significant risk for head and facial injuries. So we are seeing a lot of that. And I think part of it is the increasing competitive nature of some of these youth sports. It's also with a sport like that or with ice hockey where boys and girls play it differently. In, in boys lacrosse, they're wearing helmets and they're whacking each other with sticks. And that's closer to a, um, a full contact or full collision sport. It would be hard for that not to translate if girls are watching how boys are playing it to play it the same way, but without the protective equipment. Absolutely. So I think we have we have to think about the protective equipment, but also think about are the rules actually being enforced? You know, what what's the referee calling or not calling? What is sort of the, the culture of the game, the, the intensity of the competition? All of those factors come into play. And I certainly think in some ways um, we've seen sports sort of kind of all, I don't know if arms race is the right, right word for it, but sort of increasing level of competition make other teams realize, okay, we've got to, you know, become even more intense ourselves. And it's really sort of upped the ante, upped the pressures on kids, kids both physical and mental, and I think also increased the risk for injury as well. Boys' brains and girls' brains are probably built in much the same way, but yet there are different rules or protections. That's kind of an odd thing. It is a really odd thing. And I think there's a sort of social, social and cultural reasons for that. Again, particularly thinking of the example of girls lacrosse, the sport, the girls version of the sport developed with sort of its own identity. And historically, the idea was that, you know, girls shouldn't be as aggressive as boys. And so we don't want to put helmets on the girls because we don't want to encourage them to be more aggressive. And I think uh, today it's fairly obvious that Girls can play just as intensely and just as competitively and aggressively as boys. And so we need to take the injury risks in the sport just as seriously as well in terms of the you know protective mechanisms we're putting in place. You know, interesting you should mention that I used to teach high school. And I remember watching some of the boys and girls ice hockey because uh, it was a very ice hockey kind of school and thought, why aren't they wearing helmets? <laughs> Because um, they're, you know, they were really going at it. Yeah. So I think it just shows how sometimes our narrative about sports safety doesn't line up with the reality on the ground or the reality on the field. And we have to take what's actually happening on the field very seriously if we're going to actually prevent these injuries. You know, you mentioned arms race, which is going to make me switch gears here just a little bit. You wrote in this year's um, essay that 
um, military analogies really permeate football and have a long history. And you quoted from a 1892 article in Harper's Weekly that said about football, I'm quoting here, if there is any game fitted to the training of the soldier, it is this one. And it characterized football as a mimic battlefield in which players were expected to display a spirit of self-sacrifice. Um, you went on to write that, you know, young players are frequently expected to withstand physical harm, demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice for the greater good, destroy their opponents, and the attitude of, quote, next man up, familiar from pro football's response to often gruesome injuries, as you wrote, percolates down to middle school and junior varsity football. Some people reading your essay or hearing this might say, so what's wrong with that? How, do you, how would you respond to them? Yeah, the, the way I would respond is I would say we're talking about children. We're not talking about soldiers. So the, the very long history of football and its close association with the military was something I was really interested in studying. And as you pointed out, it goes all the way back to the 1890s. Uh, football really quickly became adopted at West Point. You know, our military academies um, developed football teams. It was seen as a really great sport to train, you know, future soldiers or prospective soldiers in certain kinds of skills. And that sort of mentality, I think, has profoundly affected the sport to this day. And the idea that you need to sort of hide injuries, not, you know, tell your coach and just try to play through pain or play through the injury, I think has been very long lasting. And unfortunately, I think that is a harmful uh, attitude, especially when it comes to kids. We are really worried when we think about a child not reporting, especially something like a concussion, because not getting prompt medical care can put you at greater risk for more severe outcome mm. or, you know, potentially more, you know, risk if you were to sustain a second concussion of further damage to your brain. So your your idea that these are kids, I think, is a great one. Would that mean that there's a difference then between injuries in youth sports and high school and even college sports as opposed to professional sports? Is there kind of a difference or dichotomy between them? I think there are some differences, certainly in terms of how you would think about the ethics. You know, a six-year-old can't consent to the long-term potential risk of, you know, a brain injury because they don't have the capacity to even fully understand what that means. Obviously, for a six-year-old, the decision would be with the parents or with another adult, whereas with somebody who's 18 or older, typically we would say if they are fully informed of the risks, at that point, they might be able to make a fully informed decision that a certain level of risk is something they're they're willing to take on. And I also think it's important to think about uh, the sort of pressures, the social pressures that might lead people to take on some of these risks. So if you're a young person and it looks like the only avenue to college is a college football scholarship, maybe you decide, okay, I guess I'm going to have to take on these risks because I really want to be able to access an education. But I do think we as a society have to think about is that the, the route we want to sort of require young people to take? Do we want to make sure that there's options for kids that don't entail, you know, potentially putting your brain at that kind of risk? So as you just mentioned about sports as a route to college or, or success, does that bring up the idea that then there might be racial or ethnic or economic issues involved here? Absolutely. It absolutely does. And we've certainly seen over the past decades, 
football become increasingly dominated, both youth football and college football, by lower income and disproportionately African-American young players. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is for people who are disproportionately marginalized in our society, football, even though it has you know some significant injury risks, might be seen as this is the best option that's available on the table. So I think we have to think about that very seriously in terms of who's actually most at risk for these injuries, which populations are most being exposed. And you can actually even look at that in terms of the positions on the football field. Uh, Even to this day, the positions that are most likely to deliver or receive hits are typically more represented by African-American players, whereas positions such as kicker or quarterback tend to be more disproportionately represented by white players. So we see both even playing football at all and then which position you are on on the football team still have you know significant racial and economic disparities even today. The subtitle of your book, The History of Youth Football and the Origins of a Public Health Crisis, you're, you're wearing your, um, your convictions and your findings on your sleeve there. Um, you must have gotten some pretty interesting feedback um, from people. Probably, I would guess some are calling you a pariah or worse. You know, I actually, surprisingly, I was sort of bracing myself for that, but I've gotten much less pushback than I expected. I think maybe the funniest example of pushback I got was um, there is an Amazon review of my book that's titled um, No No Country for Boys to Live In, which I found really funny, actually. And that, I think, does kind of represent the, the critique of my book, which is to say, you know, football is really essential to who we are as Americans. And sort of any challenge to to thinking about when kids should play football is a challenge to the kind of country we want, we want to be. So that I certainly would represent as maybe the strongest pushback I've gotten. But I've actually had a lot of great conversations with football players, with coaches, where they've said, yeah, actually, I kind of wish maybe I just started with flag or I'd waited till I was a little bit older before starting to tackle or I love football, but I'm really glad I read your book because there are some real you know, injury issues we have to grapple with. And even if we don't agree on everything, most of the people I've talked with we agree that we want to take concussions seriously. We want to improve the safety of the sport. So I was actually really pleasantly surprised that I didn't get as much pushback as I anticipated. And maybe part of that is the, the title of the book, No um, No Game for Boys to Play, actually comes all the way from 1907, where a, a medical journal article said, actually did almost the same thing that my colleagues and I are doing today. Interesting. The Journal of the American Medical Association, they listed out how many uh, young people, young kids had died playing football that year. And they said, well, maybe, you know, older adults or college students could be playing the sport, but there need be no hesitation in saying that football is no game for boys to play. And I took that as my title because we've been having this conversation for over a hundred years. And that just really stood out to me that this is, you know, a sport where doctors and public health people have been worried about this for such a long time. And we've been having this conversation about, you know, when when is it appropriate for kids to start playing this sport? When is it too risky? And I wanted that to be the title of my book to kind of represent this is a really long conversation and we're just kind of in the, the most recent version of it. So if you were the health commissioner of youth sports for the United States of America, what kinds of things would you need to happen 
Great question. I think we would, of course, want to talk about first, which sports do we want to put on the table for kids? Are there some mechanisms that are too risky? So we, we take boxing off the table for young kids. We take tackle football. Good news is we still have a huge range of sports, tennis, skating, all these other sports that we would still be able to have on the table. And then we would talk about what are the requirements, particularly for the adults who are responsible for kids' safety? What do the adults need to be trained in? What resources does every league or every youth sports program need to have? So certainly, if I'm thinking about football, for example, at the college level, I would say you have to have an athletic trainer who's trained in responding to heat stroke. That is mandatory. You have to have access to an ice bath, for example. You have to think about what are the, the basic safety requirements that we need to put in place. You also have to think about what are the consequences for programs that don't adhere to those safety requirements. Um, unfortunately, and again, I'll take college football as an example, we've seen coaches who have overseen um, the death of players then move on to keep coaching at other schools. That's not acceptable. We have to have actual conse consequences when safety is not actually treated seriously. Um, and I think even more broadly, the long-term goal is to set a culture where we address and hopefully one day get rid of this attitude of just playing through pain. Like that is not the goal of youth sports. The goal should be to have fun and run around and get some exercise and be with your friends. And so I think we need to do that long-term tough cultural work of saying we're going to set a new culture here where kids are speaking up if they're in pain. They're getting medical attention if they need it. They're taking a break if their body needs it to recover. They're going back only when it's safe to do so. And that's what I really want to see for sports across the board. Well, Kathleen, if I get lucky enough to have grandchildren or live long enough to see them, um, I will be looking for youth sports that resemble that. I love to hear it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fascinating and a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>